I wanted to start by saying that I was really excited when Bob um, kind of showed me the schedule and he asked, you know, what I wanted to teach on as we go through Acts. And the minute I saw that the conversion of Saul was one of the choices, it was like that. I didn't even have to think about it because it is a story that I have always loved. The Apostle Paul is one of the most amazing figures, I think, as we, as we go through biblical history. And his conversion is, is, such a, is such a strong story and speaks to me that way that I'm, I'm hoping I can even touch the surface of how it is spoken to me and convey that to you. I hope you, you get something from that. So I just want to open in a quick prayer whew, because I'm feeling a little bit like... Gosh, I want to tell so much stuff, and it was very difficult. I, I get where Bob is coming from, trying to trim out that I don't have to give you every piece of biblical knowledge that I gained from this, because it's impossible to do. There are so many layers to, to everything that we read in the Bible, so that I just want to stick on what it is that the Holy Spirit's given me for today. So Lord, I just lift this day up to you, and I just ask, you know, if I start going off on a rabbit trail, if it's your rabbit trail, remind me that that's Okay that it's all good, that you've got something in mind for today, and just keep me squarely within that. And I love you, and I praise you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Okay. All right. So um, I'm going to just start with a real simple question. And I'm going to ask throughout this message for you guys to put yourself in a place from time to time. I want you to to go from where you are at. So my first question for you, and I put this out on Facebook because I wanted to get some answers. Um, have you personally ever misjudged somebody? Did you ever meet somebody and your first impression was like, yeah, they are not for me. And um, it, it just, it wasn't that you, you said anything bad about them. You didn't actively badmouth them, anything like that. You just personally were like, yeah, they're not my cup of tea. And then you find out later that, hey, I actually kind of connect with this person. You know, but because you never said anything, you don't really have to come clean, right? You know, you're like, no harm, no foul. They don't know where I was at. And, uh, and then you're okay. You're able to connect with them. Have you, let's take it a step further, have you ever taken someone else's word about somebody? You know, somebody doesn't like them. They're kind of filling your ear with a bunch of stuff. You're like, yeah, they're terrible. Maybe you talk some smack about them. I don't know. Maybe you do some damage. And then later on, you have the opportunity to get this, to know this person on a one-on-one -on -one basis and realize you were wrong, right? So where are you at that point? Do you decide, one, I'm going to be brave and I'm going to come clean with this person that I've caused some damage, you know? Or are you so ashamed that you're like, I'm gonna have to move from the state because I can never see them again, you know? Right? Now, some of, the, some of the answers that I got back on these questions when I put it on Facebook were really good. One was, was somebody who had taken somebody else's, you know, take on a person and and eventually had to come clean with that person when they got to know them, and that person forgave them, and they became very good friends. Two of the people that responded um, gave me a little inside knowledge that these people that they had had these misgivings about, serious misgivings about, were the people that they are currently married to, right? 
So I love that. And married in a good way. Like, you know, they're not like on the way to divorce. They're married. They love this person. So they were wrong. They were wrong. And, and, um, but they had wisdom and being able to recognize that they were wrong and move forward in something that ended up being a beautiful relationship. Now ask yourself, have you ever been Saul of Tarsus wrong about somebody? And if you haven't been coming to DCC for very long, if this is your first, first time here, maybe you know what I'm talking about, maybe you don't. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a little recap because I want us all to be on the same page as we move forward from that point. So we're in the book of Acts, written by Luke. And Luke wrote the book of Acts in mainly to help a new Christian by the name of Theopolis, and in general to help new believers. And one of the things that it does is it links the four Gospels to the other New Testament writings, talks about the Pentecost and the beginning of Acts, where the apostles were in the upper room and the Holy Spirit descends on them and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And it talks about how the ministry of the church is carried farther and farther out to more and more people. But part of how this is accomplished is through a man named Saul, who we refer to as Saul of Tarsus. And it's because of his persecution of the church in Jerusalem that this happens. He is actively persecuting the believers in the way, which is what they called Christians at the time, Jesus, the believers of Jesus as the Messiah. He's actively persecuting them, which causes the believers to scatter because why wouldn't you? Why would you want to stay where you're being persecuted? So believers scattered other than the apostles who, sat, who stayed there to continue um, uh, pastoring the church that was growing in that area. So think about, we're going to go back to, to two weeks ago where Pastor Bob taught on the stoning of Stephen, okay? Because that's kind of the, the point where this explosion took place, where this act of persecution really ramped up and caused people to scatter, which the side effect was it made the word spread, which is a good side effect from a horrible situation that happened. But that's where we're going to kind of start so we can make sure everybody's caught up. And I don't have this scripture um, on the screen. I'm just going to read it to you. Acts 8.1, Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. So last weekend, Pastor Bob taught on Philip and his ministry and how he allowed God to move him to some out-of-the-way, unusual places to help teach, give testimony, give witness. And so while Philip is on this journey and he's continuing his traveling, this is where we pick up right now in Acts 9, and we're going to go 1 through 31. So it's a big chunk of scripture, and I'm just going to break it up into little or pieces. So Acts 9, 1 through 2. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the rest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. 
So at this point, we talk about the believers who have scattered, and many of them have gone to Damascus. Damascus is an area from my study that had many, many synagogues, and at this time, Christians would have been still engaged in identifying with these Jewish synagogues. So it looks like they probably had in the area of 30 40 synagogues. So believers had gone likely to this area and Saul wants to go after them. It's not good enough to stay where he is. He wants to go after these people that have scattered, bring them back and anybody else who professes to be a believer in Jesus as the Messiah. He's active in his persecution and more importantly than even that, he believes he's right. He doesn't believe that Jesus is resurrected He believes Jesus is a false prophet. He goes back to Deuteronomy and the law where it says that a man hung on a tree is cursed. And he says, why would God, would God really take somebody who is cursed and been hung on a tree and bring him back as our Messiah? Would he do that? So that's where he was. He was spiritually blind about what the Old Testament taught about the coming Messiah. He was a Pharisee who believed in the law and that individual righteousness was what the di- made the difference. It wasn't God's righteousness. It was individual righteousness and people's ability to follow the law. So that's where he was. And how dangerous does that make somebody who believes absolutely that they are doing God's will and that they are righteous in going after these believers of the way? So he thought he was right. He thought he was doing the right thing and... Uh, He wasn't going to be stopped in doing that. And he got what he wanted. They gave him those letters, and he heads to Damascus. And that's where we pick up in the next section of Scripture, Acts 9, 3 through 9. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And notice here that that's lowercase l. So he doesn't know... It's Jesus. It doesn't know that. He's just, who are, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they had heard the sound of someone's voice but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. So if any of you have ever wondered what a come-to-Jesus meeting looks like, (laughs) that literally is it, right? Right? That is literally it. And it's interesting because the men that were with Saul, they heard the voice, so they know something's happened. But this was an intimate exchange between Jesus and Saul. They hear a voice, but they don't hear what is said. And we aren't told whether or not these men come to be believers later. But we can surmise, I believe, that it would have caught their attention, right? And that everything that happened afterward with Saul, and as, as Saul uh, recounts this story, both as Saul and then later when he's known as Paul, when he recounts the story of his conversion, these men would have been like, yeah, I know something happened. So this is a circle um, of people where their story about the fact that they were there when something happened and that they know what a big difference, what a change there was in 
in him after that point, it would have absolutely caused interest. And, and it would have brought more attention to that story as credible, that something had happened. That last line, uh, verse 9, where it says, he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink, really spoke to me. And if you uh, were here when we taught on Sermon on the Mount, Pastor Eric taught on fasting. And one of the things Pastor Eric said about fasting was it was our natural response to grief. And that spoke to me in such an enormous way to think about Saul who thought he was doing God's well. I mean, he thought he was right. And then to discover that he was persecuting the Son of God, that he could not have been more epically wrong about Jesus, that he truly was alive. And what kind of grief would that have been for him? I mean, we think about grief in our terms. Think about how he persecuted and had people killed and imprisoned, all because he thought he was right. He had been brought up in, in this knowledge, trained in this knowledge, taught this, that this was, this was it and that, yeah, Jesus is not the way. Only to find out in that encounter on the Damascus Road that he had been totally, incredibly wrong. That, that grief must have been just unbelievable. And the fact that he is blind for three days during that time, we talk always about how difficult it is to get quiet, quality time to spend with the Lord. That there are always so many things vying for our attention. I would say that that three days was a forced, quiet time for him, right? That's a good time out, absolutely. You know, to really soak in what it was that happened and to hear from, to hear from the Lord about what's gonna happen next. He's gotta be wondering what is gonna happen next. And, and having grown up a, a, in the law and being a Pharisee, I would think his nature would be like, I need to know something. I need to know what I'm supposed to do next. So that brings us to Acts 9, 10 through 16. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. And the Lord said, Go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him in a vision. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem, and he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So this is the first reference in Acts about the, the gospel going to the Gentiles. So that in and of itself is very significant. And the two people that we're talking about in this chunk of scripture, we've got Ananias, who's a devout Jew, who is a believer in Jesus, okay? And it confirms that later on in Acts 22. And he's not to be confused with the Ananias that we talked about earlier in Acts 5 that 
that drops dead, right? And has the wife, Sapphira. And one of the ways that we know this innately as we are studying this section is uh, one of the things Pastor Bob has taught that we, one of the things we like about Luke's style of writing is it's chronological, right? So that helps us when we're studying the word. And man, is it good to study the word that, that this is not the same Ananias from Acts 5. So we also know something about Ananias, that he's afraid, and rightly so. So think about that. You're Ananias, and it's not like God's asking you, you know, um, kind of like run by the door and yell in there that this is going to happen. You know, you're going to be able to see. You have to go to Saul. You have to lay hands on him and, uh, so that he can see again. So I can understand why he would be afraid. But I love the fact that he, God tells him that he is giving Saw this information at the same time. All right? He's like, he's going to know that you're coming. He's going to expect you. He's, he's giving Ananias some comfort and some assurance that he's not going to be just showing up unannounced. Right? We know that Saul, and I want to take a moment to just point out that they're still calling him Saul at this point, even after that experience on the Damascus Road. So that made me kind of study that piece out, and, and I think it's significant because for a long time I had the misconception that the Lord had renamed Saul to Paul. But that's not in the Bible. And as I, as I read through this and I studied, it was kind of pointed out that Saul was his Hebrew Jewish name, and Paul was his Hellenistic Greek name. So as his ministry was focused to the Hellenistic Greeks, it would, have been, it would have made sense for him to use that name, Paul. But it also makes sense for us when we see how he changed from Saul to Paul. But God didn't just flip that switch as far as like, okay, nobody else will ever know what you did or, or who you were. And that's significant. And we're going to come back to that in, in kind of just a moment. And, I, and just as a Bible reference in Acts 26, 14, when Saul, Paul, is recounting his conversion, he points out that Jesus is speaking to him in Aramaic and addresses him as Saul. So that's some extra confirmation about this. They don't start referring to him as Paul really. Uh, Luke does not until Acts 13, when he sets off on his missionary journeys. So tell me what you think, or think about what you think, that last line, that last verse, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Think about it for just a second. Because I believe that many people who read this think punishment. I am going to make him suffer for what he's done. But if you think about, again, back on Sermon on the Mount, when we talked about the section eye for an eye, that sometimes we confuse justice, right? We confuse revenge for divine justice, right? And so when you read that, you have to read it thinking about God's character. And would God say, Saul is my chosen instrument, and boy, am I going to punish him. I don't know. I don't think that makes sense. And studying it out, I feel like most of what I came up with and most of 
um, the commentaries I read and other interpretations of it agree that it wasn't, it wasn't a punishment thing. That in this, in this instance, divine justice was the opportunity for redemption. It was the opportunity for redemption for Saul. So in Acts 9, 17 through 19, our next section. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. So Ananias has been afraid, but he was obedient, right? He trusted what God said to him. And he said yes to what God asked him to do. So think for a moment. Could Ananias have had any inkling of what an enormous part of biblical history he was about to play by going to Saul and laying hands on him? Because we know he really, God could have done it without him. But he chose to use Ananias in that way. And I think that that, that showed Ananias' trust. And he had told Saul this was going to happen. So when Ananias came, Saul could see that God was squarely in charge. And that would help build Saul's trust, right? Because Saul's got to be feeling a little bit shaky right now with all that has happened. Saul's thankful he can see and start spreading the gospel unhindered. You know, I could see. I'm sure I could just picture him being like, let me out there. I'm ready to start telling everybody the real truth, right? Even though Jesus is our atonement, Saul wanted this opportunity. He wanted to be out, that, out there telling everybody how wrong he had been. It was that immediate overflow of Jesus' grace in Saul that just was taking him over, right? He wanted that opportunity. As somebody had, who had grown up as a Pharisee, Jesus would know, right, that Saul was very steeped in the tradition that there had to be atonement for sin. So even though that's not what Jesus requires of us, he knows who we are. And when we talk about Jesus coming to us wherever we are, whatever we have done, that is exactly what he did with Saul. He came to him while Saul was on a mission to go persecute believers. And he went to him, met him where he was, and in that encounter, changed Saul forever. All right? And he didn't just flip that switch and Saul all of a sudden knew everything. He still had some work to do, right? He had to build that trust in Jesus to be that powerful testimony that he became. So in Acts 9, 19b through 25, Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem? They asked, and 
Didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. They were watching, him, watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him, but Saul was told about the plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. So, you know, here's Saul all of a sudden being protected and discipled by the very people that he had persecuted for so long, which is an amazing testament to who these believers were. You know, this, this tight-knit group who believed and understood the experience that he had. And then on the other side of that coin, the people that were trying to murder him were the people that he had been so tightly interwoven with before. And now that he's teaching about the Messiah, they're ready to murder him. And that must have been a really tough place for him to be in. And something that it doesn't specifically spell out in this scripture, but in the study that I've done and other scriptures it speaks about, it, when you read this, you might think to yourself, okay, Saul had this experience, and then immediately he knew everything about Jesus, everything he was supposed to teach about the gospel, and it might make the rest of us feel like, well, I'm saved, but that didn't happen to me. Was my salvation broken? Was there, what happened in my experience? Why couldn't I have been filled up like that? That's not exactly how it happened. In between so if Luke had included this, he probably would have stuck it in between 21 and 22. Uh, Saul went to Arabia in this time frame. And it was the opportunity that he had for the Lord to instruct him directly. And it states in Galatians, uh, it's Galatians 1, I think 10 through 24, he talks about that he receives direct revelation from Jesus during this time and not human, any human source. Why? Because he's not taking somebody else's word for it anymore. He's totally learned his lesson in that way. He's like, I am going to hear from Jesus directly what the truth is. And so he is gone for that time. And when he comes back, that is when his preaching becomes more and more powerful. Why? Because not only did he have that experience, but he has spent the time away with Jesus to hear directly from him, to have that direct revelation. And don't think for a second that you can't have direct revelation. When we talk about reading the Bible and we get that rhema word, from the Holy Spirit, when we're reading that Bible, that word that is for us, that is a direct revelation for you. That is something that we can have. So imagine, you know, when you read something and you're like, oh my gosh, the Holy Spirit revealed this to me and you want to share it with everyone. Imagine where he was at after having all this time that he has gone away to get that direct revelation. So now we're in Acts 9, 26 through 27. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. 
So I don't think it's any big surprise, right, that people were like, yeah, sure you're a believer now. You know, maybe they thought that they, it was a trick to kind of get them all in one place. Um, but what really struck me about this passage was thinking about how this was yet another kind of suffering for Saul. Because he is so passionate that he wants to write the information that he's put out there, okay? He knows that really there isn't anything he can do to make it right. Jesus has made it right for him, but he wants to play his part. He wants to do whatever the Lord is asking him to do. And how heartbreaking would that be to know you have this amazing word this amazing information to share from a personal experience you have had so you know it is not just some theoretical thing that you believe you know, but people are afraid of him. That would have been a very deep suffering for him and his soul, I am sure. And then Barnabas, who comes on the scene here as far as like being his encouragement, um, think about times in your life where God brings somebody in, we talk about it all the time, that God brings people in and out of your life to encourage you, to help you through things. This is a great example of that. Barnabas was an encouragement to Saul because I believe that he probably needed that in a gigantic way to have somebody who remained on his side as he traveled back to Jerusalem. And, and to I don't know, just again, to be kind of his armor bearer in that way. And when they use, when they talk about, and this is just a side note, the apostles, him bringing him to the apostles. In this context, they're talking about apostles as spiritual leaders. They're using it as a kind of a wider umbrella in that, in that text. So this is an example of how Saul trusted. Okay, so we had Ananias who trusted what God said to him and how Saul now is trusting what God said to him, even though there is suffering and there is heartbreak for him about what he's done. So we close up this section of scripture with Acts 9, 28 through 31. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. When the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. So when I finished studying and reading this section... I thought to myself, I wanted the, the point, what's the point I want to make? You know, what is so compelling about this story? And I think that it's that each and every one of us can identify in some way with what Saul went through. Now, probably none of us would say, like, that's all a Tarsus. He and I, I totally, get, I totally get him. You would never say that. But truly, when you read this, you think of a few things. You think, number one, look at the value of one man brought to Christ. Easily, easily, Jesus could have said, hey, 
I am just going to take somebody who's already a believer and, and we'll just let Saul go on his way. But that's not what he did. He met Saul exactly where he was at and he used who Saul was to make that conversion all the more striking, all the more powerful. And a man who was so zealous for God when he was wrong and even more so when he discovered the truth. He took that, he took that deep, that deep rooted desire again to right the wrong that he had done. And remember, only Jesus is our atonement, but Jesus would have known what Saul needed. And I feel like Saul was happy to have the opportunity to suffer for the name of Jesus. Sometimes we feel like we have gone way too far to ever be reconciled to the Lord. But have any of us even touched the depths to what Saul went to? And if the Lord was able to recognize that uh, and reconcile that and have him be a chosen instrument, then absolutely each and every one of us can have that. As believers, we are already chosen instruments of God. It's just whether or not we say yes to what he presents to us, what we're supposed to do with that, how we're supposed to move forward. Do we understand and are we okay with the idea of suffering for Jesus' name? And worship team, you can start heading up. So thinking about suffering, again, when we, we looked at it in that context, it wasn't punishment. You know, suffering in the Greek, the translation, suffered to be acted upon. So it is having to endure something, and suffering looks different for everybody. It doesn't necessarily have to be physical suffering, though to be fair, if you know anything about the story of Paul, there was physical suffering that went on. But it can be emotional suffering. Maybe you suffer because you're the believer in your family, and you are, you're standing firm, and you suffer because you're not seeing fruit from that now. But we're called to continue to suffer for his name. All right? Think you have to have the right context for that and what fruit can come from that and how we can trust. If God has asked us to do it, there's a reason. We, we trust him. So when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, okay, so I want, um, before I close in prayer and move us into communion, I want to find a really super awesome quote to throw out there. And I looked and I looked and I found one, but I didn't find it from a book. It's a quote from my niece, Sunny. And when she was very little, she was in the car with my sister. And she said, Mom, you know those people who say they don't love God? They do. They just don't know it yet. And I thought, you know what? That is like the most perfect quote ever. Because each and every one of us, believer or not, we are built to love God. We are built to love Jesus. And we need to remember that every person we encounter, they are built to have that love inside of them. They just don't know it yet. So I'm going to close this in prayer, and then we're going to go into communion. And as we do this, just 
just be so thankful that we have as believers the opportunity to know that. And that for people, if you're not there yet, if you're not a believer yet, you just don't know it yet, okay? Hang in there. We have people in the back who will pray this through with you. If you feel like God is calling you to something that you're a little nervous about and that you're having trust issues, have them pray with you. If you have family that you have been interceding for, trust God and don't give up. Trust that he knows the end and that he wouldn't be asking you to do something if there was no point for it. Just be thankful that we have the opportunity to have the Holy Spirit who can help us every day hear directly from God and what he wants. And we don't ever have to take somebody else's word for it. We can have that direct revelation for ourselves. Lord, thank you so much for this afternoon, for this opportunity to discuss your word, God. And I just pray that every single person in this room receives a word that is fresh from you, an encouragement, a reminder, Lord, and that they can feel confident and trust what you are asking of them. And that every time they encounter somebody, they can remember in the back of their mind, believer or not, this is how we were built. We were built for you. And we, we just ask, give us that opportunity, God. Give us that opportunity to step out and what you would have us do. We love you and we praise you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, so we're going to move into communion. If uh, you haven't done communion with us before, we've got juice and crackers and gluten, uh, juice, gluten-free crackers and bread at the crosses. You can serve yourself, you can serve your family. Bob and I would love to serve you at the front. We'll have wine and you just dip the cracker or the bread in the juice and you take it. But just remember, you know, when you do this, it means something. Jesus has something for each and every one of us. And this is just our way of coming together as a family and thanking him that he just doesn't leave us to our own devices. In the pressing, you are making new wine. In the soil, I now surrender. You are breaking new ground. In the crushing, in the pressing. You are making new wine In the soil I now surrender You are breaking new ground 
So I yield to you and to your careful hand. When I trust you, I don't need to understand. Make me a vessel. Make me an offering. Make me whatever you want me to be. I came here with nothing. But all you have given me, Jesus, bring new wine out of me. In the crushing, in the press. You are making me wise In the soil I now surrender You are breaking the ground Oh, you are breaking new ground So I yield to you trust you, I don't need to understand. Make me a vessel, make me an offering, make me whatever you want me to be. God, I came here with nothing, but all you have given me, Jesus, bring Cause where there is Jesus, bring new 
Whatever season of life we're in right now, God, if you are stirring something deep within us, God, we may think that we have it all together and that our life is great and we're right where we want to be, but God, there's this pulling, this urging in our heart and in our soul, God. Let us realize that that is you, that that is your voice, and that it doesn't have to be scary, God, that it can be exciting that it can be a call for adventure, Father. That you're pulling us from something that we've been in, God, but you're taking us to something brand new and it's gonna be a blessing and it's gonna be amazing, Father. Pour the new wine out over each and every one of us today, Father. Worthy of every song ever sing, worthy of all the praise we could ever bring, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you, Jesus the name Show me who you are and fill me with your 
conversion throughout our hearts, God, wherever we, we're at right now. We pray that we just hear your calling on our life. We just hear you pulling us into this new season um, of, of adventure, Father. We pray that over this congregation. And we just love you and thank you for everything that you're doing with our church and with our community, God. And we just lift the name above every other name, the name of Jesus in one accord. All of God's people say, amen. We just love you guys and just pray that you have an amazing week. Um, we're probably going to worship for a little bit longer, so if you want to stay, by all means, please stay and worship with us. But you are free to go. There's have a blessed no week. We hope to see you next week. There's no other name like yours, Jesus. Like yours, Jesus. There's no other name. Confess the name.